not much emotional consistency. And there's not emotional consistency in our lives either if we're out of fellowship with God. Any of us come here on Sunday morning, we're just praising the Lord and exciting. But you show up at work on Monday and there's little adversity and in comes this challenge. And you kind of go up and down. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are working on a study of the book of Jonah, and today Dr. Brogy begins a new message working his way through chapter 4. Many have denied the historicity of the book of Jonah, but Pastor Carl has examined that even Jesus saw Jonah as a historical figure. Let's join Dr. Brogy as he continues his series on Jonah. I invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to the prophet Jonah, chapter 4. If you're new to the Bible, just find the middle, that's about Psalms in most Bibles, and scan to the right and you'll soon hit Jonah. Jonah, Micah, Nam. Use the table of contents if that's useful to you. We've been working our way through this short little prophetic book. Because of the shortness, he and 11 others are called minor prophets, but we've seen indeed their message is mighty. And we've been examining Jonah from a historical perspective. And I say historical because this book is not fictional. It's not a parable. It's not an allegory. It's not a fairy tale. It's history. It's history of a real person named Jonah who is the real son of a dad whose name was Amittai, who was raised in a real town near Nazareth called gath Hefer. He was swallowed by a real fish. He preached to real people called the Ninevites in a real place called Nineveh, which resulted in real conversions. He was spit up by a real fish. This is not myth or allegory. This is history, and that's how Jesus understood it, and so that's how I understand it. Jesus said, just as Jonah was in the stomach of the sea monster for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Jesus didn't say, well, just like Jonah allegorically was in the stomach of the great fish, so I will allegorically be resurrected. What is true of one is true of the other. And so the historical resurrection of the Messiah is linked to this particular historical event. And so Jesus will go on to say, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented to the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus saw the repentance, the Ninevites is real as history. And what the Lord believed about Jonah, that's what you ought to believe. You may be asking, well, why is one's interpretation of Jonah so critically important? It's because of the mess that our nation is in today. We're in the mess that we are in for the simple reason that people no longer respond to the authority of Holy Scripture. The President of the United States came out 10 days ago, and he said, I said this last year, I say it again, especially to our younger transgender Americans. I'll always have your back as your president so that you can can be yourself and reach your God-given potential. That's upside-down thinking. Transgenderism does not reflect God-given potential. It represents fallenness. It represents sin that can be forgiven and can be changed. 
And so we are called to defend the faith. It's articular in the book of Jude. That is this body of truth we call Holy Scripture. And now the church in America has been woke. The sad thing is, is that many people who are in these woke churches don't even know that their pastors are woke because they're so deficient on basic biblical truth. There's a lot of people today who want to ignore the authority of Scripture. And they say, well, it doesn't really matter if you believe in a literal six-day creation. Oh, really? It doesn't really matter if you believe that Adam and Eve were real historical people. It doesn't really matter if there was a literal ancient flood that covered the whole world in Noah's day. It doesn't really matter if there was a person by the name of Jonah who was swallowed by a real fish. And they say that these issues are really unimportant. But when you acquiesce to that kind of thinking, you lose all biblical authority. And when you deny biblical history, you always end up denying biblical morality. And that's where our pulpits are across this nation. So our approach is the approach that Christ took to understanding Jonah. We are looking at it as history. Now, if you remember, he ministered the word of God to nearly 600,000 people. The single greatest conversion of the history of the world to date takes place. And you would have thought God would have ended the book there, mission accomplished. But actually the apex of the book is Jonah chapter four because God has some work that he wants to do in the life of his prophet. So we're going to begin by reading our passage of scripture. If you're new, there is a note-taking outline there in your bulletin. If you're live streaming, there's a place for you to be able to print it out. We're going to look at the middle four verses, but I want to read the entire chapter, so follow along in your Bible. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. The Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day. It attacked the plant and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work, and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals? Now, for the benefit of those being here for the first time, and for the rest of us to help embed the details and the broad picture of this book in our mind, because when you see the big picture of a a book of the Bible, when you can think your way through it, it becomes a tool, 
not just to help others, but to help us to grow. If you remember here this chart, we've seen that this book revolves around two commissions. In chapters one and two, we have the first commission introduced in the opening verse, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And then if you remember, the second commission starts in chapter three and verse one, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the prophet the second time. And then we have further studied this under four different headings. If you remember, we met him in chapter one running in the opposite direction from where God wanted him to go. We called him the prodigal prophet. The sovereignty of God, he is thrown overboard, swallowed by a great fish, and he quickly becomes the praying prophet. And of course, he vows to do what's right. And so the praying prophet in the third chapter becomes the preaching prophet. He preaches the message of the Lord. He preaches about Christ. How do I know? Because he's a prophet. And Peter says in Acts 10, all the prophets preached the Messiah. Sometimes we think, well, these guys didn't know a thing. How wrong they are. All they need to do is read Acts 10. He understood what Messiah was going to do someday. Didn't know his name would be Yeshua, but he preached Jesus. There's mass conversion. And then in chapter 4, we meet him as the pouting prophet. Now, it's interesting in Scripture, God doesn't just reveal the success of his servants. He also reveals their failures, which is one of the reasons I love the Scripture. It's so real. When God paints the portrait of a man, he does it blemishes in all. Now, typically, we associate pouting with children, but it is certainly not limited to children. Now, if you've been with us and you've been taking notes, then you know with each chapter, there are three words that you've written out in the margin that kind of summarize that particular chapter. So you should have by now, unless you're here for the first time, next to verses one to four of chapter four, the word attitude, the word attitude. Then next to verses five through eight, you've written down the word consistency, the word consistency. And then finally, next to verses 9 through 11, you've written the word perspective, the word perspective. So we find Jonah here in the fourth chapter matriculating into a seminary called JTS, the Jehovah Theological Seminary. And in this seminary, God is the professor and Jonah is the student. So last time, he enrolled him first in a course on attitude. Today, we'll see God's course on consistency and God willing next week, God's course on perspective. Now, we are told in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that the mistakes and the sinful decisions that Old Testament saints made were written for our benefit so we can learn from them. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10, he said, now these things happened as examples for us. He had just recounted some of the gross things that Israel had done. They happened as examples for us so that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. And then in verse 11, he'll write, now these things happened to them as an example and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So lest any of us be smug and think that we could not commit the same kind of sins that Israel committed or that Jonah committed, He then quickly adds, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. If you think these problems, these challenges, these sins could never happen to you, then you are really tempting the devil to tempt you. And we know that 
any of these things could happen to anyone because then he says in verse 13 of that chapter, no temptation is overtaking you but such as is common to man. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you are able, but with the temptation, provide the way of escape also that you might be able to endure it. And so in chapter four of the book of Jonah, we find this full-grown adult as a pouting prophet. Now let's just remember for a moment the contrasts between Jonah chapter three and Jonah chapter four. In chapter three, we found God ministering through the prophet. Here in chapter four, we find God ministering to the prophet. In chapter three, we find God ministering to an entire city. Here in chapter four, we find God ministering to a single individual. Why? Because God is not simply interested in the masses. When the Bible says, for God so loved the world, he's speaking certainly of the masses, but then there are other verses in the New Testament that affirm that if you were the only one alive, and Jesus were to die, he would have done it just for you. God is interested not just in the salvation of the masses, but each and every individual, and the same could be true of the subject of sanctification. God has the very hairs of our head numbered. So here's Jonah. God has done a lot already in this prophet's life, but he has more to do. There's still a certain amount of self-love, self-desire, self-will, and self-determination that God needs to root out for him to become all that God wants him to become. And so while there are different methods in different centuries and in different places that God uses to care for his people, his ultimate goal has not changed one bit. God is over the prophet Jonah's life, and God is over your life He's over my life. Now, three simple points. If you're taking notes, first, I want you to see God's ministry to Jonah by his sovereign giving. We want to see how God ministers to this pouting prophet, and he does in three specific ways. First, God's ministry to Jonah by his sovereign giving. Now, this is brought out in verse 5, but what precipitates God's actions was Jonah's attitude that is seen in the question that God asked him here in verse 4. The Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? Now, God likes to ask questions because they're effective in helping sinful people like us to see what the real problem is, to understand the state of our own hearts. So God asks Adam a question. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? God asked Eve a question. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? God directed a question to Cain after he murdered his brother. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? Then he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. By the way, whenever you hear God ask questions in scripture, obviously it's never to learn, it's only to reveal. In his revealing issues, he comes to the prophet Samuel and he asks specifically, um, uh, what have you done? He asks that in reference to Saul who had interfered by walking into the office of priests that was restricted to only those who were called to be in the priesthood. So God asks through Samuel to Saul, what have you done? After King David committed adultery, and then devised a plan to cover it over with murder 
and he murdered Uriah and by default a number of Uriah's men. God comes through the prophet Nathan and asks him, why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? God asks the prophet Isaiah directly, whom shall I send and who will go for us? The omniscient Christ asks Judas, Judas, are you betraying the son of man with a kiss? Jesus also asked the apostle Paul on the Damascus road, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And it's just the same here in the book of Jonah. God is asking a question to help him to understand the state of his own heart. Do you have good reason to be angry? Now, someone may be thinking, but Jonah never really answered that question. That's not true. He does answer it, not verbally, but behaviorally. He answered it not by what he said, but by what he did. Look, if you will, now at verse 5. Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So he sits east of ancient Nineveh, which if you've seen the place, it would put him up in the hill country. It would put him up in a higher elevation over the city. He wants to get up above the city. He wants to see precisely what God is going to do. And of course, he's hoping that the fire will fall and God will destroy all the people. So here he is in his little shelter of sticks and leaves and twigs and he's pouting and he's waiting and he's looking, hoping that God will bring fire and brimstone down from heaven. Now, I do not know how long it took the Ninevites to hear the gospel and to be saved, but obviously day 40 had not yet arrived. That's why he's still waiting. He's waiting to see if God will relent to see if the repentance of the Ninevites is genuine. But why Jonah? Why should God change his mind? He's got to. Didn't he hear what I said? Oh Lord, please take my life from me for death is better to me than life. Jonah is saying, Lord God, this is bad. It is so bad if you are going to relent, just kill me, take me home. And in this way of thinking, God obviously, from Jonah's perspective, is obligated to do something. And sometimes that's what we think. So here's Jonah, he's on the 50-yard line, he's got a choice seat. He's wanting to see what God is going to do. And he even says, God, if you're going to relent, just kill me. So to adjust his attitude, God lovingly moves into the life of his prophet, and he's going to do some corrections. And as we see God dealing with the prophet Jonah, we get an important answer to the question, do you really need to love people before you can minister to people? Do you have to have a genuine love for someone to share the good news with them? Well, Jonah obviously did not have a sincere love for the Ninevites. But God certainly could have used them even more effectively, as we'll see in these next two remaining messages, had he had a sincere love. So please notice God's ministry starts here in verse 6. So the Lord God appointed a plan. By the way, when you read the Bible, one of the things that you want to look for is words that are repeated over and over and over again. 
And God never repeats himself because he has nothing to say. Every single word is given by the inspiration of the Spirit. There are no accidental words in Scripture. And when God uses a word over and over again, it's typically to get our attention so that we do not miss the truth he's trying to underscore. Now, please notice that in the immediate context, God uses three visuals to get Jonah's attention. You might want to underline them. In verse 6, it says, God appointed. There's the first time, appointed. God appointed a plan. Then in verse 7, it says, God appointed. There's the word again. God appointed a worm. And then in verse 8, it says, God appointed a scorching east wind. And so the outline reflects those three particular visuals that become tools to build consistency into the life of this prophet. And what an education he's going to get from the living God. So the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. So here goes God appointing something again. We've already seen in the first chapter how God hurled a great wind on the sea such that there was a great storm, such that the ship began to break up, Jonah 1.3. And then we saw God's sovereignty again as the lot fell on Jonah, identifying him to the sailors as the culprit such that he is thrown overboard. Then we saw how God appointed in verse 17 a great fish to swallow Jonah. And now God in his sovereignty has appointed a plant. And God, in essence, commands the plant grow overnight, and it does a jack in the beanstalk, and he's got this marvelous shade. Now, some of the older English translations, if you've read the introduction to the 1620 King James Bible, I had received a 400th anniversary copy of the old King James, and I read the introduction. It was rather interesting. And among other things they said is that they were still many of those scholars learning Hebrew because remember for a long time the languages were not studied and they were convinced that there would be many changes and indeed there have been. They put a scripture out in 1611 and then six months later they put 1611b and two years later 1613 and then the 1638 and so forth. In fact, there's been five revisions of what we typically call the old King James and now the new King James. So they rendered this a gourd. And when they were uncertain, they would go to the Latin Vulgate, which was the single translation that the church had for a thousand years. So they get the term gourd from the Latin Bible. But actually the Hebrew word is not of a gourd. It's the Hebrew word kikayon, and interestingly, if you remember, there's a Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint. And when you put both of those languages together, because the Septuagint tells us how the Greeks understood the Hebrew, you learn that this is the castor oil plant. Now, the castor oil plant in some parts of the world will grow 30 to 40 feet tall. Typically, in this part of the world, it will grow to be about 12 feet in height. Here's a slide of uh, what it may look like. You can see it's large leaves that created this shade. Now, whether the one God grew that day was just like this, I suspect it was much higher, much fuller. I mean, he was able to get underneath it. 
So this is a fast-growing miracle. God supernaturally grows up this plant, and we're told here in verse six, and Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. Now you talk about a mood swing. (laughs) In the opening verse, but it, the conversion of the Ninevites to the Lord, greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. And then in verse three, in the depths of despair, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. So in verse one, he's pouting. In verse three, he's despairing of life. But now, because of this plant, he's extremely happy. Not much emotional consistency. And there's not emotional consistency in our lives either if we're out of fellowship with God. Any of us come here on Sunday morning, we're just praising the Lord and exciting. But you show up at work on Monday and there's little adversity and in comes this challenge. And you kind of go up and down. Now remember, this is the same preacher who in chapter two and verse nine said, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving that which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. He said that in the belly of the great fish. He said, you are a good God. I will praise you. I'll do whatever you want. Salvation is from you. And when we like what God is doing, we are often extremely happy. But then when God does something that we don't like, we may get mad. As long as you're performing God according to my plans and my expectations and my hopes and how I think it should be done, I'll love you and I'll commit myself to you and I'll serve you. Pastors have to deal with this all the time. I get calls from pastors constantly who are discouraged and downtrodden in the churches that they are in. You know, you you make a decision that the people like, oh, we've got the most wonderful pastor in the world. We just love our pastor. But then comes a decision by the pastor or his deacons or the board of elders or whatever their polity is that may be a morally neutral decision. But people don't like it. And so they hit the roof and they come out unglued and they pout. See, the problem here with Jonah is that he was allowing his emotions to be controlled by his circumstances rather than by the character of the living God. And so God is first going to reveal to him something about his sovereignty. And you're not to let your feelings, we are not to let our circumstances run our life. Otherwise, we'll just be on this roller coaster, up and down, up and down. Facts never change. But if we let our circumstances control us, we'll have this kind of an up and down Christian life. Now, God created you with emotions, and they're not to be ignored or to be denied. They are a good thing. They're a part of being made in the image of God. But God wants our emotions to be rooted and directed in the truth of Holy Scripture. There are people who look for an emotional high, maybe even on a drug, because it makes them feel good. There are people who go out and get drunk because it makes them feel good. There are people who are involved in sexual promiscuity because it makes them feel good. And so just because you have a feeling obviously doesn't make it a valid feeling. And so whatever feelings that we may be experiencing, we need to bring them through the, the, the screen of Scripture. God created us with emotion. 
but how we feel should never supersede what He has given us in Holy Scripture. If you would like a copy of today's message in its entirety, go online to searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program Jonah 009. You can support the ministry of Search the Scriptures by calling or you can give online at searchthescriptures.org. Your generous donation plays a role in providing biblical teaching and spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. Tomorrow on Search the Scriptures, we continue this message in our series on Jonah in chapter 4. Join us then as we continue to search the Scriptures.